And this is America's Web Radio. My name is Doug Dahlgren, and I welcome you to the prologue. Now, what I do with this hour is simple and rather straightforward. I offer an introduction to a writer you may not have heard of before. Now, some, of course, obviously you have, but very many of them, this could be the first time that anyone's mentioned them to you. But I assure you, it wouldn't be the last. My guest today is published by the Mercer University Press and has been featured in Georgia Backroads Magazine. In fact, that's where I became aware of this very gifted writer. One quick side note to those of you that live in Georgia. If you're not aware of Georgia Backroads Magazine, let me just say this. You should be. Look it up on your computer and get your subscription, and you will love the magazine. Now, as we get started with this hour, let me offer, as we always try to do, a collective thanks to those brave men and women who serve and protect us both here and around the world. That's obviously those members of our armed forces, but let's also include the first responders here at home. That's those police, fire, and EMT personnel who come to our aid when we get in trouble. Thank you all for what you do, and we're very proud to have you as listeners on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is Dr. William Rawlings. He brings us his book, A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff. It's a true narrative story that focuses, quote, on two intertwined tales, as our author tells us. And this is your prologue. Wealthy and wealth, excuse me, and prosperity blossomed in rural Georgia during the years following the Civil War and peaking in the first two decades of the new century. From meager beginnings, one family and its patriarch became wealthy and powerful figures in and around the town of Sandersville in middle Georgia. Farming, cotton, livestock, and banking were key assets to this empire. Within the space of five years, a great recession and a tragic death brought down not only the leader of this family, but the economy in the region in ways that reflected throughout the South. The book is A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff. Its author, we welcome to our show today, Dr. William Rawlings. How are you this morning, sir? I'm fine, Doug. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for coming on. As I mentioned earlier, Georgia Backroads Magazine, that, that publication played more than a small role in this book, becoming a reality, did it not? It did. It did. I, um, I started off writing originally fiction, and when the book market publishing industry slowed up around 2008, 2009, I, I was addicted to writing by that time, and I started writing nonfiction. And for uh, a number of uh, a number of uh, months, I kind of toyed with what to do until someone suggested that I write an article about my great uncle Charlie, Charlie Rawlings, who, as you alluded to, was in 1920 he was he was said to be one of the wealthiest men in the state of Georgia. And by 1925, he was serving a life sentence for murder. And I thought it would be a great story of a man uh, who was brought down by his own pride, by his own arrogance, but. Um, when I started looking into the story, I found out not only was the murder tale interesting, but far more interesting to me was the economic history that went along with it. So that, uh, the Georgia Backroads Magazine eventually, uh, article eventually morphed into a full-length book. In the preface to your book, you go to very great lengths to disavow true historical intent, yet your detail on both the family history aspects and the economic realities of that time are, are very well-researched and laid out for us. 
Why did you express that concern? Well, one thing that I didn't want to do is present a book uh, that is the definitive history of an era. I wanted instead to tell the story of what happened in dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of small towns and small communities about the South in the era. The, the story of, of Uncle Charlie was interesting, but one thing that I didn't want to do was to try to rehabilitate his reputation to say that he had been somehow mis, uh, wrongly convicted of, of a murder. But what I find far more interesting than the story, or at least equally interesting, was, was the crash of the cotton economy. You know, when you live in a small town, as I do, and when your family's lived here for the last couple of hundred years, you, you look around um, and you say, gee, what happened? Why did this place, wonderful, big, huge homes, their great buildings, their abandoned railway stations, what happened? What happened? I didn't know until I started researching the book, and I realized that it was the crash of the cotton economy, the Great Recession of 1920. So I wrapped in what I thought were two fascinating tales into one book, and that was the result was a killing on a ring job bluff. Absolutely. Now... To, to kind of further explain this thing to our listeners, there are those two major themes that's in the book, and, and both are historical with the detail, and they're historically factual. The Tar Button, Mur uh, Tar Button murder case and the economic death of rural Georgia. Is there one of those that you consider was your main theme? Well, if if I if you if I had to choose, I would say it would be the economic story. But as as, as I've said to many people, if I'd written a story of the crash of the cotton economies in the 1920s, I would probably sell about as many books as I have relatives. So um, I, I took some inspiration from Eric Larson, who's famous for a number of books. Um, uh, my favorite being uh, The Devil in the White City. This was a book he wrote a number of years ago. Eric Larson's a great writer, and what he did, he wanted to write about the 1893 Columbian Exposition, but in fact nobody would have bought that book. So he wrote about a serial killer who was operating in Chicago at the same time. And in, in the process, people read for the, bought the book for the murder story, and yet they learned about some very interesting facts of the latter part of the 19th century. In this book, um, I, I think dry economic history is dry economic history, but if you put a human face on it, as in Uncle Charlie, and as in the numerous other people I mentioned in the book, it becomes far, far more fascinating. Just a little trickeration there. Is, who was it that said that? Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, just, just you want to get people to, to read the story, so we include the, the very fascinating murder tale. But, but, but I mean the, the whole the whole thing is is it's it's they're integrally entwined. You simply cannot separate the economics from everything else. You can't separate no. Uncle Charlie. No, cause and effect. Yeah. yeah, sure, sure. Cause and effect there. Now, Ringjaw Bluff. That sounds like something or some place out of a Zane Gray movie or, or book. Really, uh, where exactly is Ringjaw Bluff? D doesn't it though? Uh, for those listeners who are not familiar with the anatomy of Georgia, going from east to west, you have the Savannah River, followed by the, uh, going west is the Ogeechee River, next river is the Oconee River, then the Okmulgee River, then you have the Flint, and finally on the west coast of Georgia, west um, border of Georgia, you have the Chattahoochee. The Oconee River, the third one I mentioned, um, joins with the Okmulgee River to form the Altamaha. This Ringjaw Bluff is a high bluff on the Oconee River, currently on the border of Lawrence County, which is Dublin, and uh, Johnson County, the county seat of which is Wrightsville. Um, it, the name is, the origin of the name has been lost in time. Uh, it was said to be the corruption of an Indian name, so no one really knows what it means. 
But it's a definite location there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's a definite location. And, uh, in fact, when writing the book, I, I literally went out and looked at Ring Joe Bluff. I, I'm very picky about things. I want to make sure I tell a good story. So I didn't want to write about it until I'd seen it. I got a friend of mine. We went down to the boat landing, got on the river, and rode up the river to see Ring Joe Bluff. Now, you were born and raised in that area. And I was. it's what you, what you described to me earlier as the center of the universe. So what was what was growing up like in the center of the universe? Well, I think it's a matter of perspective. You know, in the United States today, 85-plus percent of people live in urban areas. And if you talk to someone who lives in Atlanta, they consider themselves from a very sophisticated uh, sort of place. And if you say, well, I live in a small town, their first reaction is, gee, you know, what's wrong? Only the lame, the halt, and the blind still live in small towns these days, and everybody who is anybody has moved to the city. Well, you know, I kind of disagree. Um, it, it When you grow up in an area where your family's lived for many decades, um, you have an acute sense of, of continuity, of history, of community that is so often lacking in urban areas. And this sense of continuity is one of the things that's sparked my interest in writing uh, history these days. It was good. It was a good experience. I, if I had it all over to do again, I would do exactly the same thing. When I finished uh, my residency, I moved back to Sandersville, and lo, these many decades later, I'd do the same thing again. It's a great place to live. And you're not far from uh, Milledgeville, Georgia, for those who are still a little unsure. And Milledgeville, back in the days of the Civil War and around that period of time, was actually the capital. So saying it's a yeah, saying the center of the universe is really not that uh, far wrong. I had told the doctor, I said, I found Sandersville. It's about 20 miles east of Milledgeville. And he says, no, sir, it's 20, uh, Milledgeville's 20 miles west of Sandersville. So I stand corrected. Um, we, we, now, you have lived two capitals. Louisville was the capital. Uh, first Augusta, provisionally. Then Louisville was the pers- first permanent state capital. Then it moved to Milledgeville. Then it moved to Atlanta. That right. Right. So we've had several. We couldn't quite decide who we wanted to be there for a while. Well, it's, it moved west with the population and then north, as it were. There we go. Now, like we said, you've lived in Sandersville your entire life, and that's to date. I always have to add that because people get offended. But now you and your father were both physicians in that town, am I correct? That's correct, along with my grandfather, uncles, my sister, my brother. Uh, we, we come from a long line of physicians. So if anybody had a headache, they came to the Rawlings house. Well, we, uh, you, you know, surprisingly, for example, in the latter part of the 19th century, uh, the, the Rawlings Sanitarium Clinic here in Sanderville was a mecca for people. Uh, my great uncle, who has the same name as, as I do, uh, studied in Germany, did some of the first surgeries of various types. First, uh, Apparently, the, by reputation, the first cholecystectomy or gallbladder removal in Georgia. It was quite a place. Um, the world changes, but this was... Um, this was quite a mecca for people that had medical problems 100 years ago. So being a local doctor there, and, and your practice was what? Were you a specialist or were you general yeah, practitioner? I'm, I'm, I'm an internist by trade. I, I went to okay. Emory and I trained at Tulane. Then I went to Johns Hopkins for several years and came back here. Okay, all right. But still, being in the town and being the local doctor, you probably know more about the folks there than the police do, don't you? Well, well you do, but by... By reasons of medical confidentiality, you can't say anything, but I tell you what you can do. You hear and see and know so much, all you need to do is just strip away the personalities and take the story and string it together, and it makes a great fiction novel. I don't write about people, but I, I do sometimes write about experiences.
Well, now, again, the book we're here talking about this morning is A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff. Dr. Rawlings, tell the folks where they can find that book, please. Um, you can, the, probably the easiest and best place to get it is from Amazon.com. You can, it's available now, at, um, it's available in uh, hardcover, and also last month in September came out in softcover. There's a Kindle edition and also a Nook edition. If you have a Nook, uh, uh, you can order it online from various other sources, including Barnes & Noble. Now, and you have a personal website for this, do you not? I do. I do. It's uh, www.williamrawlings.com, my name. All right. And there's a lot of great information there about not only yourself, but the book, a little background history about the book. Uh, and, again, you said that the main character in this story uh, is a great uncle of yours. That's correct. He was my, uh, my grandfather's brother. Um, there were... Several. There were four sons in that family. One was killed in a duel, a shootout on the city square in 1893. One became a distinguished physician. The other one, my grandfather, became a distinguished attorney and legislator. And then Charlie was the one who went into business, was quite became quite wealthy before his downfall, and and became the center of our story. Again, the book is a killing on Ringjaw Bluff. Its author, Dr. William Rawlings, is with us, and we're going to be right back on the prologue after these short messages. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we are back. This is the prologue. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We are here this morning bringing you Dr. William Rawlings and his terrific book, A True Narrative of a Time and a Place in Central Georgia. The title is A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff. Uh, now, Saundersville, if I'm saying that Sandersville was the center of the universe for many people back in those days, and there was a young editor from the Atlanta Constitution back in, what, 1886, I believe it was, by the name of Henry W. Grady. 
who was in New York and gave a, a rather uh, famous speech, I guess, uh, where he mentioned Sandersville and also uh, made a direct shout out to a member of his audience, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, take a little time. Tell us about that story, would you? That's a, that's an interesting episode. Everybody um, in, in studying Georgia history, everybody mentions Henry W. Grady. He became the de facto spokesman for the so-called New South in the years after the Civil War. Atlanta is characterized as like a phoenix rising from the ashes. And in that regard, Sherman uh, cut a, a very wide swath between Atlanta and the sea, uh, burning and destroying. I think today, um, under objective circumstances, Sherman might be prosecuted as a war criminal. There are people that would disagree with me. If you ever go to New York in front of the Plaza Hotel, there's a wonderful big statue of Sherman. But uh, it, it's uh, for those of us who had the homes and plantations burned 150 years ago, the, the memory still lingers on. Henry Grady, that was interesting. He, the, uh, when you mention um, the New South, everyone thinks of Atlanta, but the only city in the entire New South speech, and that was the title of a speech he gave to the New England Club in 1886, was Sandsville. And he had a funny thing. He said, um, in his speech, he said several things. He said, first of all, the South does not need to apologize for the past. But he talks about the Southern veteran who said he was going to grab his wife and go home to Sandazul. Um, and he, he made a comment to someone in the audience, uh, General William Sherman, who's, who he referred to as, quote, a mite careless with matches. Only Sherman would have caught that because Sherman burned downtown Sandazul. Uh, in fact, the building that I'm in at this very moment was a form of Masonic Hall, the the predecessor to this uh, Masonic Hall was one of the few buildings that Sherman, as a mason, did not burn. So, but he burned the courthouse and burned the stores and burned the records. And so, if you go to the courthouse, the records all kind of—they don't—they start in 1865 after Sherman moved through. It's a bit that of act, memory. Yeah, that act, as you said, uh, you know, uh, it could be looked looked upon as just purely mercenary and, and rather vicious, and yet, uh, from a military standpoint, it was kind of tactical. It um, was, it was, it was. And, and, and like, like many, many, many facts or theories or statements about that era, it will be, it has been and will be endlessly argued by, by various people. Uh, uh, there's no, it's history, and of course, if history were so cut and dried that we all agreed upon it, then it wouldn't be interesting at all. But history is not. History is somewhat mutable. It some changes over a period of time. It changes depending on who's writing it. Sometimes. A lot of times, history is written by the winner. Oh, and, it is. Uh, that, that, that puts a slink. You know. It's I, I, I'm, my next book that I'm working on, which is actually the, the book number eight. Uh, <clears throat> I'm doing some short pieces on Georgia history, and it's very interesting to read about a given topic. You'll find that. Uh, Opinions vary widely depending on the viewpoint of the author. Oh yeah, well, and and the burning. I I don't mean to sound at all argumentative, but you know, military people would tell you that with the limited forces he had and the limited supplies that he had, what he was doing was protecting his flank. That's uh, true. But, but this the the particular burning of Sandazel was done in retribution for some resistance offered by the town, 
Oh, yeah. And that, and that in itself was a bit unique. In fact, we're coming up uh, very shortly, a reenactment. We, uh, I think it's this coming weekend, actually, of Sherman's March to Sandsville. It's, it's a locally big event, and we'll have a lot of reenactors here this weekend. And from my view where I sit at this very moment, I can see the courthouse square and where they will all assemble and shoot a cannon and shoot some muskets. It's an interesting event. Sounds sounds like fun, really. I mean, you know. It is. It is. They, they tragic thing. They march up the street and shoot a cannon right next to my office building. And I say, oh, wow. <laughs> tragic event to recall, but still everybody has to find some way to have a little fun with it. So sure. uh, that's a good time to get along. Well, now, being a doctor, which you are, and, and quite successful at that, is, is a terrific calling. But so is being a writer, if I may say so. When did you first realize that you wanted to write? Was it in elementary school or high school or college? or no, Where no, did that no. first come to you? Um, to be truthful, I, the, the sort of joke that I say is that I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good typist with too much time on my hands. Um, I, um, I think I probably did not start writing until I was in my 40s, and even then I didn't do very well. It took me, it took me a while to sort of learn the craft. Writing, per se, is a craft, and that is to say it's part art and part science. You can master the objective stuff, but it's that little artistic bit, that little bit of talent that you either have to have and not have or really have to work hard to learn. Um, uh, I, 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 I like fiction, and like most new authors, I started out writing fiction, but after a while I realized that it was not nearly as challenging or as interesting to me as writing nonfiction, so I switched to nonfiction, particularly with the Georgia Back Roads magazine and my, this current book that we're talking about as well as the next couple of books that are coming out. Well, this is a good place to ask you this one. Um, tell us right quick with a change of pace, who is Matt Rutherford? Uh, <laughs> Matt Rutherford may or may not be one of my alter egos. Matt Rutherford uh, is the um, protagonist in three of my, uh, of my fiction novels. He is the small-town slacker, somebody who kind of lives in a small town in Georgia. He's quite bright, uh, but really clueless when it comes to such things as women. Uh, and he manages to get himself in the worst predicaments. Uh, so he he was, um, I introduced Matt Rutherford in a, uh, my second novel titled The Rutherford Cipher, which is a, a play on what happened to the lost Confederate gold, which is kind of a standard Southern mystery. In that book, I, I, I proposed that the, Southern, the lost Confederate gold stolen from the Confederate Treasury in April of 1865 was, in fact, buried deep within the Savannah River site in South Carolina, which is a nuclear weapons production facility. And I, I, it's, it's interesting that uh, that book came out, gosh, 12 years ago. No, let's see, about 10 years ago, I guess. And uh, I ran into a fellow um, about six months ago who worked at security at Savannah Riverside, and he said, gosh, when your book came out, it had us all scared. We had people we had people going wild over here because, you know, you, you, you told us how people could sneak into the place and look for that gold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Ten years later, I hear this about my book. I just, I just figured out what might happen. And then Matt well, Rutherford changed. Back he, couple he changed. He changed from fiction to nonfiction with uh, the killing of Ringjaw Bluff. We've got right. Dr. William Rawlings with us here this morning, and we're going to take another quick break. This is the prologue, and we will be back in just a few minutes. I'm about five minutes ahead of myself. You are. need to put my glasses back on. Excuse me, folks. And, David, if you're out there, I beg your pardon. I haven't done that in years of doing this. 
We were talking about your fiction work before I interrupted there with, with a little bit of a brain lapse. How many fiction novels do you have out? My first five books were for, were fiction. Uh, my sixth book, which is A Killing and a Ranger I Bluff, is nonfiction. My seventh book, which will be out next March, is nonfiction. And my eighth book, which will be out thereafter, is also nonfiction. So uh, five five thus far. And that will probably be all. I have, I have another half-written uh, fiction novel, which I just never completed. I, I may sit down one day and finish it. Uh, when you when you work with fictional characters, are they easier to describe and uh, and what we call flesh out than the real human beings when you're describing them? Well, well, the the, the problems are, are different. I mean, uh, when you're writing fiction, you create a world and you change the facts to fit the storyline that you that you want to tell. When you're writing nonfiction. You're, you're stuck with whatever facts may or may not be available. Um, here in this Washington County where I live in Sandsville, there, there are a number of tales, fascinating tales, that I would like to tell, but there's simply no documentary information, so I can't tell them with any degree of veracity. Um, it's, you, you look for the little things that flesh out a character, be it fiction or nonfiction. Uh, people like Uncle Charlie, who's the more or less, I guess you'd describe him as the protagonist of A Killing on a Ranger of Love. He, he cut a wide swath, so a lot was known about him. He was uh, frequent, uh, frequently mentioned in the newspapers. Um, so it's a little bit easier to, to do one or the other. It just depends on what your source material is. Now, was it the motivation of this family story that, uh, that drove you to the nonfiction, or uh, were you just ready to try to tackle that venue? I think I think um, to some extent writing is a game, and I, I don't mean that flippantly. But it's very much like playing tennis or playing golf or something like that. You want to get good at what you do. You want to you want to be successful. You want to succeed. Succeed. And um, I think writing good nonfiction is infinitely more difficult than writing fiction. Um, oh, you've got you've got. Guidelines and, and, and uh, absolute stripes on the field. You have to stay within. So you do, you do. You can you stick to the yeah. facts. And if you don't stick to the facts, it doesn't work. And so, so to write a successful nonfiction book is is far far more difficult than writing successful fiction, in my opinion. In my opinion, and also the other thing is also has what I describe as a longer half life, if I can use that term. That is to say, a fiction book is good for three months or six months, and then you're only as good as your last book. A good nonfiction book may remain in print for many many years. Oh yeah. Oh, well, some of the some of the fiction stuff can be, uh, you know, undated and and go on forever. I, I think Ian Fleming is one of those. But uh, it can. At any it rate, can, but it can. But someone's always trying to do the same thing, trying to trying to best win in fiction. And I think nonfiction is unique. You write it. You write a unique. Oh yeah. So that's. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now, when did you first realize that you were going to tackle? And I know it first came out in a short story, but when did you first realize you wanted to tackle a killing on Ring Job Bluff? Um, when I was writing the the magazine article, I, I said, "This is a great story. I've got to tell it." But it's very complicated, and it, it's going to take a tremendous amount of research. And I said, "Okay, I'll do this because it's something like you, the word you use is tackle. It's that's the best thing. It's it's an uphill." I feel battle to to do the necessary research to travel to spend hours and hours and hours in libraries and online looking up stuff and putting it all together and making it into a great story. <clears throat> Again, that's the key. It's it, it, the 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 key to a successful book, be it fiction or nonfiction, is the storyline. 
Not just great, it just so happens the characters are real. Gathering the information and then laying it out in a way that makes it interesting. Right, right. Absolutely. So, all right. Um, you know what? We are actually approaching that magical time now. Tell the folks again, where can they find A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff? Perhaps the best place to find the book is online, Amazon.com. It's available both in hardcover, paperback, and in Kindle editions, and also it's available in the book. And you can order it from numerous other sources. It's very easily found. And, folks, here are those previously early announced breaks. This is Doug Dahlgren, and you're on America's Web Radio. Thank you. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And good morning again. We are here on America's Web Radio. My name is Doug Dahlgren. Our guest this morning on the prologue is Dr. William Rawlings. He brings to us his book, A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff. And this book tells us about uh, turn of the century, middle Georgia, center of the universe, Sandersville, and all of that good stuff. And the doctor explains and describes in his work a small-town experience and environment that is different from the rest of the state, particularly the way people look at things in Atlanta. Doctor, could you expand on that a little bit for us? Tell us what it is you mean, because I think folks really are going to agree with you on that. Well, as I said earlier, today 85-plus percent of Americans live in urban areas, and the average American family moves about every three to five years. And in that sense, you, many people don't have a sense of place, a sense of continuity. But in a small town, if you live here, not only do you have a sense of continuity, you know what happened. I'm sitting here looking at the courthouse, which was built around the, around the uh, one that Sherman burned in 1864. I'm looking at the city square, which was used as a stockade for the insurrectionist of 1875. I'm looking at buildings that were built in the 1850s. And in, in growing up here, you see your, your generations overlap. I grew up with people that were born in the 19th century, so you hear stories. Um, and you have a sense of time. You have a sense of community. Um, your family is nearby. You have support when you need it, and you can always turn to others for help. I think in, oftentimes in urban areas, you live in a cul-de-sac. It's pretty homes and nice places, but you don't know who your neighbors are. They come and they go. 
Um, and in the end, if you ever decide you want to retire, you move to some place in Florida where everybody else is in the same situation, not grounded in any place in the world. It's kind of homeless people I always refer to. Them. Um, it's it's nice, and and uh, the other thing is that you are exposed to a broad um, swath of humanity. You, you you know people of all social classes, and you interact with people. In one of my books, uh, I forget which one I make. I make reference to one of the local references, the restaurants, which I actually name by name. And and I say that if you go in there, you can't tell the millionaires from from the ones that are in poverty. The only difference is the millionaires tend to take their hats off when they eat. So, <laughs> uh, That's can, very true. If you even there's, there, there are no markers, there are no markers, and you may oh yes, somebody, you may see somebody who, who who is worth ten million, twenty million bucks driving a middle, beat up pickup truck, and you just never really know. But there's no need to display it. There's no need for any ostentatious display of wealth or anything else. Everybody knows who you are. They know you're judged not for what you have, perhaps, but for who you are, and I think that's important. Oh, that's very important, and it's very true. Uh, not far south from where you are, Appling County. Uh, mm-hmm. I have some family down there, gentlemen, farmers, and, and doing quite well. Thank you very much. But like you said, if you saw them at lunch, you wouldn't recognize them from anybody else. That's exactly um, correct. It's just like you said. There's absolutely no need. Now, and, and the, the other thing is, I think it's a sense of trust and honesty. I've, I, in addition to practicing medicine, I have several other business interests. And having been in business here for thirty plus years, you know, I, the, you, you do a lot of a lot of things. You do it done on a handshake and promise, and uh, people people never mess with you but once because that's all it takes to earn things. And so, oh, yeah. I trust people. I'm not sure I would if I lived in Atlanta. One of the main topics in the book is, of course, the economy in the South, particularly around Sandersville. Uh, King Cotton was was the big thing following the Civil War and leading up to uh, the 1920s. Tell us a little bit about uh, that boom and and how that affected the families and the culture in that area of the world. That is that is a very long, very long and complicated topic. Were it not for cotton. We're not the Eli Whitney who invented the cotton gin. The United States would be a totally, completely different country. For example, slavery would have probably died out in the early part of the 19th century. The Civil War would not have happened. America would have, would have possibly not existed because the export of cotton between 1802 and 1937 completely funded the positive balance of trade of the United States. During the entire 19th century and the first couple of decades of the 20th century, we were the OPEC of cotton. We controlled the world's market. And what happened, you know, if you go back to 1790, the South and the North were not terribly different. Perhaps they were a little bit. But, but when cotton became a when – the, when the growing of cotton became as criminally profitable as it was after the invention of the cotton gin, the entire South from North Carolina to Virginia to Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas became one huge plantation that became agricultural and grew cotton. Our entire economy for more than 100 years was based on one crop, and when it went bad, it went bad in a big way in the 1920s. So, now, now, the main character in your story was very deep into cotton and uh, farming and, and the, the cotton plantations and so forth, but he was also a banker, he was. and he was also involved with livestock. Tell the folks how that the livestock was very important in the early part of the uh, 20th century because of what? Uh, there was a need for livestock 
that well, people had never uh, really considered. Actually, actually, was a dealer in mules, believe it or not, and mules were were quite co- hot commodity. In fact, around the World War One era, the the government was buying up mules to ship them to Europe as part of the war effort on the Western Front. But where he really made his money was to, was in was in cotton and was in banking, and he owned a railroad. He owned a controlling interest in a railroad. Um, the the interesting thing is that after the Civil War, the South became essentially a cashless society. Nobody had any money until the crops were harvested, and everything for the entire year ran on credit. And um, uh, so he had a bank, and bank, banks were very important. And when the cotton economy crashed in the early 1920s, merchants who'd loaned to farm, farmers went bankrupt because their cotton prices fell. Um, Merchants went bankrupt. They, in turn, dragged down banks between, for example, 1916 and 1925. 45% of Georgia's banks failed or otherwise went out of business. Tremendous, tremendous carnage there. There was a lot that went into that, though. I mean, there were things like the uh, the pressures on labor resources. It sounds a lot like today when you think about it. Uh, there, there was. There was also the Great Migration, African-Americans, uh, uh, finally realizing that things were not any good in the South, began to grow, migrate up north, and the loss of the labor pool by, um, by Georgia, um, from Georgia and the South in general, hurt the hurt the cotton economy. As did the bow weevil. As did the bow weevil. How did that come about? How did how did the uh, the ex slaves of the African American community, as you put it, how did they start realizing that they needed to leave, that they needed to go north to find work? Well, what? well you, have, you have to understand that at the end of the Civil War, 90% of, of African Americans in the United States lived in the 11 Confederate states, 11 traditional Confederate states. Okay, By 1900, that number was unchanged. In other words, the, the North was quite happy to free the slaves, but they didn't want them up north. They were, they were, the, the Northern laws were as racist as, as the Southern laws. And and uh, it was only with the war effort of World War One and the great because during World War One European European immigration which had been fueling the uh, funding the labor pool in the North was cut off for a number of years starting in 1914 and at the same time the United States was exporting a huge amount of uh, stuff to Europe to fund the war effort we didn't get in until the spring of 1917 so it was about a three year period there when we just made money off World War One. And since we didn't have European immigrants to to help work in the factories, a lot of Southern blacks moved to the North, which is good. And this this stopped temporarily after World War One, but resumed with a vengeance of the 1920s and um, continued on up through really the 1940s and 1950s. That demise of the economy in the South, uh, history books and and a lot of us who went to school in, in Georgia were taught that the boll weevil was the cause of the South's demise. You you don't quite agree with that, do you? No, I, I don't agree with it. Simply, the boll weevil, first of all, is a devastating pest. It crossed the Rio Grande um, around the turn of the century and moved progressively east. It did devastate the cotton economies of, of Louisiana, of, of Louisiana uh, Alabama, uh, Mississippi. But by the time the boll weevil got to Georgia, uh, there were some effective... Uh, Effective uh, things to to knock to knock it in place. The boll weevil arrived in Georgia in 1915, but it really wasn't until 1921 that it began to severely affect the cotton crop. And by then, what happened was the federal government, the new Federal Reserve, had monetized cotton very similar to the way that the houses house mortgage derivatives monetized uh, mortgages back in 2005, six, and seven. That led to the recent meltdown of the economy. It's a very very similar. Um, Thing. Cotton, cotton warehouse receipts were the equivalent of money 
And a commodity, of course, may be worth a lot this week and not worth so much next week. So when banks loaned against cotton and the price of cotton dropped, the banks were out of luck. The same thing happened with mortgage derivatives. When they loaned against a million-dollar house, it was suddenly worth 500000 and they were out of luck. The importance of all this, your your primary character, again, is your great-uncle Charles Rawlings, who one day is a very wealthy man, uh, but everything seemed to be tied to this, tied to that economy, and it went south, and it put him under a tremendous strain. Uh, the other main character in the murder mystery is actually his cousin, am I right, Gus Tarbutton? Gus Tarbutton, right. Okay, and Gus also had been, uh, I think, in a neighboring county. Gus was pretty well off on his own right, was he not? Gus was, Gus was, but but Uncle Charlie had deeper pockets, and he in fact had funded Gus, and and uh, he had he had kept him out of trouble. In fact, Gus is an interesting story, a totally side story to the main thing is Gus had been accused of murder in 1906, and and has sort of gotten off the hook for the murder rap, courtesy of Doctor courtesy of Uncle Charlie's. Uh, Charlie's uh, probably generously crossing some palms with a little bit of money. <laughs> and uh, some 19 years later, Charlie's accused of killing him. Well, not to give anything major away in the book, but uh, your uncle also had taken out a rather large insurance policy on his he cousin. Had, he had taken out an insurance policy, and that was one of the reasons he was accused of murder. But when the dust finally settled, actually the insurance policy was more than adequate to cover the joint debts, because uh, Charlie and the man he was accused of killing, uh, Gus, were in business together. And like in today's world, oftentimes small businessmen take out insurance policies to uh, to cover the loss of a key player in a business. And uh, they both w- were jointly in hot to the bank, and so it did cover some of the insurance loss. But um, that was used as an excuse to, conv- to convict Charlie, part of it. Well, I hope that by now our readers or listeners are picking up on the fact that this is a murder mystery and or an accused murder mystery, and the economy and all the details that we're talking about, they are the keys to the mystery. This is why this thing was as it was. And, in fact, I believe you state that as you grew up, the family stories about your uncle were a little bit different than what you were able to uncover. I think he was an embarrassment as you described it, wasn't he? That's the best single word. He was an embarrassment to have your grandfather's brother you know, convicted of murder and do seven or eight years in jail. It was, it was, it was terribly, terribly embarrassing. But um, as it turned out, as it turned out, I, I have my serious doubts as to whether or not it was an accident rather than a murder. Do the uh, other members of your family, do they accept your findings? I think the, the members of that generation are, for the most part, dead. My 93- and 94-year-old aunt, who passed away earlier this year, did say, oh, you finally cleared his name. But I, I said, listen, I didn't start, I didn't write the book for the purpose of clearing Uncle Charlie's name. I simply wrote the book because it was a great story. Oh, and it is. It is. Tell the folks again, the book is A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff. Real quick, where can they find it? It's available from Amazon.com in multiple formats, including hardcover, softcover, and Kindle, and also um, numerous other outlets. Just Google it, and you'll find it without any problem. All right, folks, while you're listening to these messages coming up here, do that. And again, we're talking with William Rawlings, the author of A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff, and we will be back after these short messages. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. 
This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Live closer to your food source. Learn how to grow it yourself. Please join me every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern on America's Homegrown Veggie Show for tips and advice from the country's best gardeners. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back. My name is Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today, the introduction is to A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff, and its author, Dr. William Rawlings, is with us. We've been talking about uh, the primary character and characters. We just briefly brought up Gus Tarbutton, who uh, was the victim of a death uh, that caused a great deal of uh, consternation there in that area, in that community, back in 1925. Uh, tell us who Gus was and what you care to. We don't want to give your story away, but tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, Gus, Gus Tarbutton was, my, my, remember the central character here is Charlie Rawlings, who's my great uncle, um, my grandfather's brother. Gus Tarbutton was his first cousin, and Gus had been orphaned at an early age. Had uh, Charlie was considerably older than Gus, but Gus had come to, to, to live with them after his parents died. And they were raised as almost two brothers. Uh, as Charlie said on several occasions, I just considered him like I did would a son. I loved him very much. Charlie apparently introduced Gus to his wife. Charlie had helped Gus in business, and as I alluded to earlier, he also got Gus off what would have been a murder rap in 1906 when there was a rather bad event. Um, by 1925, both of them were in financial trouble. There was a possibility of bauxite. Bauxite is the ore that is that's used to uh, from which aluminum is derived. It was a big thing in that era. Bauxite was 
as good as gold, and they thought they had found a bauxite deposit here in central Georgia because we have a lot of those aluminum silicates. make a long story short, they were out walking by the river on the steep bluff called Ringjaw Bluff. Charlie was with his overseer, a guy named J.J. Tanner, Jim Tanner. Jim Tanner was carrying a shotgun. He slipped. The butt of the shotgun hit the ground and blew off Gus Tarbutton's head. Um, Charlie had nothing to do with it directly, but because he and Gus were mutually insured with insurance policies, he was accused of having uh, convinced Tanner to shoot him, uh, and he was convicted. There was supposedly a witness, but the witness was clearly a perjured witness who had been probably bought. And again, there was probably a lot of ill feelings in the town because everybody was affected by the way the economy had. Uh, there was, there was a lot of ill feelings, and and the thing about Uncle Charlie was he was without a doubt one of the richest men in the county. Therefore, putting him away would all of a sudden put all of his property and everything else he had on the open market, and it could be bought at a steep discount. And in fact, it was. And he the lost the story. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and I was going to say he lost everything. Ezra. Oh yeah. Well, the story of Gus uh, Tarbutton's demise and the trial that you explained in, in tremendous detail, it, that's how these two events, the, the fall of the economy and the murder, that's how these two events are entwined. And uh, the politics, race relations, the social mores of that time are mixed with the you know facts that sometimes were overlooked, the facts of the actual murder accusation. Um, there's a chapter in this book that's devoted to uh, a rather infamous group, the Ku Klux Klan. Now, what was their role in the economy's rise and fall in small towns in Georgia? Well, in, in answering that question, you really have to talk about the 1920s in general. In the post-World War I era, there was a distinct belief that America, that America was on the wrong road, that we were on the road to perdition. That is, that things were going to hell in a handbasket, if I can use that term, that America was losing its, its moral compass, etc., etc. The Ku Klux Klan arose as a uh, allegedly Christian moralistic organization that stood for uh, 100% Americanism, which was a motto, together with such things as white supremacy, muck, uh, Christian ideals, and so forth. And for a few years there, they were a very prominent social force in the United States. Unfortunately, Uncle Charlie had offended them, and they castrated him, which was really bad. Doesn't sound like a, there was a reason for that, but anyway, yeah, that's uh, that's I, kind I, of uh, read the read the book about Uncle Charlie's encounter with the Klan, but it's it's interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, we want folks to to get into it and and find out. But uh, you're working on a new book, are you not? I, I am, I am. My, my new book will be out in March, uh, 1st of March, from Mercy University Press. It's entitled The Second Coming of the Invisible Empire. And, again, this is on the Ku Klux Klan. I got so fascinated doing research on the Klan about Uncle Charlie that I realized, gosh, this story here that hasn't been told. Briefly, I have nothing whatsoever positive to say about the hate groups that call themselves the Ku Klux Klan today. Um, the, the, there are various groups that have had the name Ku Klux Klan, uh, three separate and very distinct groups, almost unrelated. In the post-Civil War era during Reconstruction, there, were, there was a terrorist organization, among several others, called, they called the Ku Klux Klan. And today, in the post-World War II era, there are hate groups who probably have a racist agenda who, who call themselves the Ku Klux Klan. But, but... 
1915, a guy named William Simmons started a beneficial fraternal order like the Moose Club, the Knights of Pythias, the Masons, uh, the Knights of Columbus, and he called it the Ku Klux Klan. Why? Why? The reason was the movie The Birth of a Nation, which had popularized the Klan. And so it was to be a nice social order, and it sort of generated, but for a very brief period of time in American history, the Klan was one of the most powerful social and political organizations in the United States. They dominated the Democratic Convention of 1924. They, they wanted to elect a Klansman, or at least a, a friendly politi a politician who was friendly to the Klan as president. It didn't work out, and by 1930 they were pretty much defunct. The country itself went through all kind of contortions, trying to figure out how to deal with what it had done. Um, you know, the emancipation and freeing of the slaves was was more than just the act of it. It was, what do we do now? How do we make this right? And you know, there were amendments to the Constitution, and of course, groups like you talked about. Uh, and and it takes it takes a great deal of courage today to even talk about doing a book on the Klan, and yet it's something that we need to discuss. We need to discuss it, what it, happened. It, it, it is, and, and probably the first thing I try to do is educate people to say that when I write it, when I say I'm writing a book about the Ku Klux Klan, I'm not writing against the people that call themselves the Ku Klux Klan today. I'm writing about events that happened 100 years ago and about a very, 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 very different group of individuals that called, that there was a social organization, a beneficial fraternal order once again, named the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, Inc., centered in Atlanta, Georgia, and with branches in every state of the, every of the, one of the 48 states of the nation at the time. And surprisingly to people, they were, they, the Klan of the 19, 1860s and current day Klans are quite racist, but the Klan of the 1920s, uh, their, their wrath was visited upon anybody, including most commonly their fellow white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, as in Uncle Charlie. <laughs> and his his uh, meeting with them is detailed <laughs> quite right. well in the book. It is. Um, well, you know, not to dwell on that too much more, but you you are well into this genre of nonfiction now. And again, the book you're working on is nonfiction, but you also have the the novels that you did earlier. Uh, do you do you ever plan to return? You mentioned you had one that was unfinished. Do you think you'll seriously get back into fiction? I, I may finish. Actually, it's probably probably the best novel I've not written. It's, it's, <laughs> it's about half done, and it's 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 a great plot. I like it. I really enjoy it. it takes place in Savannah. It's about a, a, debar, a, a disbarred attorney who's trying, who's been sent to prison, is trying to get his life back together after he gets out of prison. And it's 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 really a good story. But again, it, it's writing. Writing can be so all-consuming. Uh, you you almost you know, you write a book, and the first thing you want to do is take a long vacation. You get burned out. And uh, I'm right in the midst of writing my book after my the book for the uh, the it's going to be out after the Clue Clan book. I never really know what I'm going to do. But I, every time I write something, I say, "Gosh, this is the last one I'm going to do. I'm just so burned out. I can't do it again." And after a week or two, I say, "Oh, I need to get back to the typewriter." Do you have a preference for the genres, either one that you would rather work in? I find um, fiction relatively easy and fun. I find nonfiction challenging and difficult. And for that reason, I've been doing nonfiction. I like the challenge of doing it. I like that. I like the idea of, I like the research. I like the discovering new things. The uh, book, Killing on Ringjaw Bluff, and, and its story, has definite lessons that we could take from it from today. What do you hope that people would learn from what happened in Georgia in the 1920s? In essence, that history repeats itself, 
the 1920s was a period of time very similar to today. Mistakes, at least what I interpret as the mistakes that were made in the post-World War I era on, in the field of economics, in the field of race relations, in the field of, uh, of social policy in general, or you see them every day today. And also, also importantly, you learn uh, it, it's people never change. Humans are humans, and, and human emotions are are similar today as they were in the 1920s. We may put a different name on them. Um, there's an interesting little thing in the current book I'm writing uh, about the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan was railing against movies, you know. And if you take a if you take an essay out of a Ku Klan magazine from the 1920s and you 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 take away the movie industry and substitute video game industry, it reads like it could have been written in 2015. Everyone's afraid of the technology of movies in the 1920s. It was going to cause broken homes and criminality and so forth. The same thing they say about video games today. Anything new. It's that, that there's and there's truth in that too. That's the sad part. Doctor, real quick, we're running out of time, but is there anything you can think of that we uh, failed to mention that needs to be brought out? No, no. I I, I, I just appreciate the opportunity to be here. I would I would urge readers to read the book. I think I think most importantly, it's a good story. If it were fiction, it would be a good story. But 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 what I've discovered writing nonfiction is that oftentimes nonfiction, the truth is far far stranger than anything you could think of. It. Oh, absolutely. Is, is no exception. Absolutely, it is, and we highly recommend it to you out there, folks that are listening. A killing on Ringjaw Bluff, folks. Uh, Let's tell the folks one more time. Where can they find this book? This is it's the best and easiest bought through Amazon.com. It's available in hardcover, softcover, and electronic editions, also in Nook or numerous other sites. It's just Google me or Google the book, and you'll come up with a place to buy it. Or you go to my website if you want to talk to me. I, I urge readers to go to my website and send me a note if they want to. I'll be glad to talk to anybody. Very good. Dr. Rawlings, I thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, Folks out there, I want you to get busy. Order that copy of A Killing on Ringjaw Bluff by William Rawlings. He leaves the doctor off of the cover title there, but uh, he is a physician. Uh, This thing is a must for your personal library, I assure you. Now, folks, that's going to do it for this week. I thank you in the audience for listening this hour. If you have any comments or anybody that you want to get in touch with us about being a guest, you can reach me at Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. And we're here every Friday live at 11 a.m. Eastern, right here again on America's Web Radio. The show is the prologue. I am Doug Dahlgren. Thank you, and I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.